Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science here on Triple R. We are very excited today. We have a big show ahead. In the studio with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Don't we always have big shows ahead, and isn't it always exciting? Come well, on. There, look, after 30 years, that has been true, uh, I would say, but there's always the chance that for whatever reason, you know, we'll get here, and Ewan won't have prepared, and we'll say, look, today's going to be a bit mediocre. <laughs> Good morning, Ewan. Good morning. <laughs> I feel like I'm on notice now. <laughs> look, uh, your stuff's about 45 minutes away. You've got time. You've got time. <laughs> You'll be okay. You well? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Excellent. Not too bad. Uh, geez, there's been some amazing oh, – we can talk about the news, but have you seen that footage of the Hawaiian volcano going crazy? I did. It's wild. Yeah, yes. I, I more appreciated the uh, imagery of the lava the other day, which yeah. you and I shared a joke about that person that was suggesting that lava lamps in and <laughs> – you know the joke I'm talking about. Yes, yes. For the, for the listeners out there, someone said that there'd been an inappropriate uh, misuse of lava in lava lamps over the years, and it was good to see the lava back in the wild. That's right. <laughs> Being protected. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a fun stuff there. Anyway, folks, uh, we're going to jump straight onto, on the line to our first guest today. We have uh, Kitty Williams, who's a PhD student from the School of Biological and Environmental Sciences at the Queensland University of Technology and part of the uh, Australian Research Council Centre for Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future. I don't know if I missed anything there, Kitty. How are you? Uh, I'm great, thanks. And yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm part of the, the program that um, it's a new initiative, a collaboration between several universities in Australia that work on Antarctic and sub-Antarctic research. So it's very exciting to be part of. Yeah, it's wild stuff. Now, you've just come back from Macquarie Island in the last couple of weeks. First of all, for those of us who are ge- geographically, you know, not, not as well-versed, whereabouts is Macquarie Island? It's about halfway between us and Antarctica, right? Yep, and there's a few islands halfway between both New Zealand, Australia, and Antarctica, and they're considered sub-Antarctic, so they have pretty wild weather, really extreme Mm. winds, a lot of rain, a lot of snow and hail, um, and really unique wildlife um, and these terrestrial ecosystems, and that's what I've been um, studying as part of my PhD. So very fascinating places to visit, quite remote and challenging, and Macquarie Island has a permanent research station there, um, so we were part of this resupply operation and also um, conducting a bunch of science projects at the same time. I'm guessing this is a boat trip, not a plane trip? Yeah, it's a, it takes about three days on a ship. And wow. we were on the new um, Australian Antarctic Division ship called the RSV Noyina, mm-hmm. um, which is kitted out with a lot of very cool high-tech scientific gear. Um, and it was... Yeah, slightly difficult journey on the way home. On the way there, we had good weather, but on the way back, it was a bit more challenging. Um, and then we had about twelve days on the island to do quite a bit of um, quite a bit of work in in some quite difficult weather. Yeah, interesting. Now, describe the island for me because my understanding is that it's not like a lot of the closer islands to Australia. There's there's no trees there, right? Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So Macquarie Island is dominated by lots of grasses, tussock grasses, cushion plants, lots of moss. It's because it's so wet. It's there's a lot of these like beautiful marshy areas and lakes on the island, um, and it also has these unique plants called mega herbs, which grow nowhere else. They're only on the subantarctic islands. So the the most famous is the Macquarie Island cabbage, which has these big leaves, which are really fuzzy, and it's a very odd plant. Um, and yeah, no, no trees. There's also no lizards, no native mammals that live on the island, like possums or anything. Um, so the, the terrestrial food web is just dominated by little tiny insects and spiders are the, the main top predators and they're only a few centimeters across. So it's a pretty odd place. And then it also gets visited by marine animals like, um, the elephant seals and, uh, uh, several different types of penguins as well. But they're marine based and they, they only spend maybe a few months a year on the island. So yeah, it's a very unusual, unusual place and interesting place to study. You know, until you said that spiders were the top predator, I was thinking, I'd like to go and see this place, but I'm a bit arachnophobic. So even when you said that, I started looking, the, my team members here realized I started looking around the room just to, just to make sure I'm okay. Um, but that's, that seems like um that seems like a very unique ecosystem how how fragile is it given that it's um sort of more limited in terms of, of what's in it compared to other ecosystems we find on the mainland yeah so it it does make it quite fragile because any introduced um animal that maybe occupies a different ecological niche or introduces a new interaction can be really problematic so some islands have had things like um, parasitic wasps that arrive and then they can really mess up um, some of the native insects and invertebrates um, or you know insects that can pollinate plants if there's an introduced plant and then you get a flying insect that can pollinate it they can help spread um, an invasive plant as well so there's there can be real issues with that um, and so Macquarie and some of these other islands have a history of um, you know, the first people who tried to settle there introduced um, like rats or rabbits or things, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. And then it, it took many, many years of an incredibly challenging um, eradication program and quite successful. But what we're looking at is how the island's recovering since then. Um, mm. So, and, and also looking at have, have any of these interactions changed between different animals um, that live there? If Is climate change having an impact on how the ecosystem functions as a whole? Um, we're try- you know, it's important to detect if anything new has arrived um, from a biosecurity um, standpoint to see if we can monitor it or um, help eradicate it, things like that. Um, and it's also just interesting to know how the island works because it's such a strange, interesting place. Um, yeah. And and the very simplicity of these food chains mean that it's it's a good way to study them to see how they work without too many species to account for as well. Yeah, wild stuff. Now, specifically with your PhD, what are you doing down there? What do you what do you bring back? Or I'm not sure if you bring back anything. What what sort of stuff are you doing with your PhD? Uh, well, we do. We have brought back a whole lot of samples. Um, so. I'm, I'm looking at the interactions between important groups like um, the spiders, moths, beetles, springtails, and how they interact with the plants that are their habitat and their food um, a lot of the time. And um, so we collected a, a lot of soil samples, plant samples of the dominant plants, um, and then we collected insects and things through a range of different methods so one of them is getting your face right up in the leaf litter and sucking up little anything you can find with a straw um, like an entomology aspirator so we did a bit of that 
um, we were collecting leaf litter and putting it through these big um, balise funnels, which you suspend from the ceiling over several days. And all the little invertebrates will crawl out um, to escape any heat and light. And then they get collected in the bottom in a little vial. Um, and we've we've just collected a whole lot of samples that we haven't even had a chance to look at yet. So it'll, I'll spend the next few years looking through them identifying what we have, comparing them to what's been found in previous years, and then also doing some isotope analysis to kind of construct how the food web works, like how different isotopes move through the food web. Right. That's so cool. And is this your first, uh, is this your first trip down? Will it be the only one during your PhD? It's possible I could try and go back again for either another resupply, but it's hard to know. Um, there's a lot of people who want to go and do a yeah. lot of different science projects, um, and, it, and it can be quite difficult to organize. I did have um, the pleasure of visiting Macquarie and some of the other New Zealand subantarctic islands last year with a um, tourist ship um, with Heritage Expeditions, and they, they provide some scholarships, and it was really wonderful to go and see those islands, and they're all extremely different. Mm. Um, even some of them are quite close together, but they all have their very different kind of landscapes and um, some of them have albatrosses that nest there and so it was quite beautiful to see them. Um, so I've been able to visit those islands too, but this is the first time we did field work cool. and it's the first time we experienced hail and snow and rain and, yeah, <laughs> and extreme wind. Sounds Yeah, you, I mean, you, you're up in Queensland. You could have done the uh, PhD snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef, but instead you decided to go <laughs> yeah. to one of the most inhospitable places on Earth. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic study, Keter. I'm, I'm just curious about sort of what you might predict is going to happen to the, to the food web, I guess, you know, going forward and particularly obviously in relation to climate change. So... The climate's obviously presumably going to affect the vegetation uh, and that may actually affect, you know, predator-prey interactions between things like spiders and, of course, the other invertebrates uh, on the island. Of course, we know with Macquarie Island, as an example, there was invasive species there for a long time, so rabbits and cats, and that impacted the vegetation in various ways too. So what do you think or what are you sort of thinking about what might change with the nature of those interactions, you know, with things like climate, of course? Well, what's known at the moment is that Macquarie Island is becoming a bit drier and, and yeah. it's historically been an incredibly wet place. Like, you know, walking along, you notice, every, you know, you get a lot of water and mud in your boots yeah. because everything's very, very squishy and wet. Um, but if it's drying, a lot of a lot of the animals are, you know, they're, they're adapted to those kind of conditions. They rely on a lot of um, water availability and, and these particular conditions. They're cold adapted. Um, so if things start getting hotter and drier, then maybe some of the animals will change their distribution around the island. It'll change how the ecosystem functions, how they, where they are and, and which, which animals might dominate different environments, um, which plants might be functioning. Um, because a lot of these plants, again, the mega herbs are really perfectly adapted to this kind of environment so if it changes it could cause these environmental breakdowns or these like trophic cascades kind of um thing and we did we did see a few invasive invertebrates as well we found some invasive slugs mm. um in one location and and they have been seen on the island before um you know unintentional arrivals um but we might be looking at how if they've expanded their range, if they've been found in any new places. Um, but we won't know too much until we examine yeah. all our samples, and that will take a long time. Yeah. It is wild stuff, uh, kiddo. And I, I can't imagine, uh, do they give you training the first time you have to go down there, especially as a Queenslander? I mean, this is kind of like traveling <laughs> to Melbourne, but worse. Um, you know, what, what's the, what is that scale up before you actually go down on the boat and, and you know, get into that very, what can be a very harsh environment? 
There's, there is training, a lot of um, just sort of basic um, safety training. And we also did have a field officer with us who's um, very well trained. And my supervisor who's with us has spent many years on the island. She knows it very well. Um, but we were also given a lot of equipment. So you have to layer up lots of thermals, um, these these fleece layers, and then these um, like Gore-Tex layers. We had balaclavas. We had... Um, um, you know, beanies, the four different pairs of gloves. Like there's, there's quite a lot because you just have to prepare for all kinds of weather. Yeah. Um, we were staying in some of the field huts as well, um, which are dotted along the island in different locations. Um, but it can be challenging to get there. Um, it gets dark very fast at this yeah. time of year, so it's 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 properly nighttime at four p.m. So you're working with limited daylight hours, strong winds. When we were sampling and we're trying not to blow away everything you're juggling like trowels and and mm. paper bags and you know ed- gloves and whatever you, whatever you've got with you it can be quite difficult um with yeah. sometimes humorous results but um we did get <laughs> all the samples that we'd aimed for Excellent. Um, but yeah it was a it was an interesting experience well well done and uh thanks so much for chatting to us today Kither. it's been a pleasure hearing about some of the stuff down on macquarie island we're talking to another one of your colleagues who's been down there in a few weeks time as well um, folks, if you don't know where it is, have a look on the map. Uh, you got to zoom in because uh, when you look at where it is, it kind of looks like just vast areas of ocean. But Macquarie Island's about halfway between Australia and, and Antarctica and, and definitely a very interesting place on our planet. Kitha, thanks so much for chatting to us today. No problem. My pleasure. Folks, that was Kitha Williams, soon to be Dr. Kitha Williams, hopefully in a couple of years, mm-hmm. and part of the School of Biological and Environmental Sciences at the Queensland University of Technology and part of the ARC Centre for Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll have Gracie on the line, hopefully from Texas. Uh, I think she's talking about tattoos. Uh, I think she just got some new tattoos. You know, she's into the science of tattoos. I could be completely wrong about that. Maybe she's going to recommend we all need to go. When are we going to get Einstein a go go tattoos? Yeah, that's what I You haven't got one? (laughs) Well, that is weird, you. That is weird. We can discuss that during the break. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. We are joined now by our good colleague, Gracie Finko, all the way from Texas. Good morning. Uh, sorry, good uh, Saturday evening. Gracie, how are you? Yes, good. It's it's 8 o'clock at night here, Saturday yeah. evening. So, yeah, sure, correct. Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> We're doing good. How's the smoke? Good. It's actually, it's not here at all, but I was actually going to talk about that for my news story uh, up in New York uh, later today. Yeah, a bit rough. So, yeah, we'll we know, get to that. We know yeah. it well. We know it well. We're still breathing out what we breathed in, what, four years ago? A couple of years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been uh, – it's rough. Now, you are going to talk about tattoos. We've just discovered that Ewan does not have the Einstein and Go-Go tattoo that Jenny and I have. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why. Uh, I haven't seen any photos of your tattoos. When do we see them? Oh, well, I can't put those up on the web, buddy. They're uh, – <laughs> In areas that would be inappropriate for children. We could just zoom in. That's fine. <laughs> it's a lot of zooming in. <laughs> hey, i got to think about that for a minute. I'm not, sure what, I'm not exactly sure what Dr. Jim just said. Uh, Gracie, the science of tattoos. What have you got for us? You, you, we talked about this once before, didn't we? Yes, we did. Actually, two years ago. So it's hard wow. to believe it's been two years since I did a two-part episode on the science behind tattoos. Yeah. So what motivated me to update this was uh, I got a forearm tattoo recently. So now I have a complete sleeve 
uh, as most people would call it, on my left arm um, before I only had a half sleeve. So it kind of motivated me to, you know, look at some more research behind tattoos that have have maybe, you know, popped up in the last two years, because last time we talked about this, there wasn't a lot at all. Mm, um, yeah. And surprisingly, there, there hasn't been that much more, <laughs> to be honest. But we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about some interesting studies that have happened in the past two years since we talked about this. So okay. first, I'll give a brief recap, though, of what we talked about last time. Uh, so basically, you have a tattoo needle that's going into your skin, and it's going actually through the epidermis, which is the most outer layer of your skin. It's actually going to the dermis. So the second layer of your skin. So that's where all of your nerve endings are. Um, so that's why, t- you know, tattoos are typically associated with pain. Um, and so 30% of the ink, though, actually doesn't quite make it into the dermis. It stays in the epidermis. Um, and that actually uh, later gets peeled off after about two weeks, whenever the tattoo is closer to healing. Um, and about 70% of the ink actually is what gets absorbed into the dermis, that second layer of your skin. And that's what, you know, kind of stays and remains as part of your tattoo. Um, and so how that actually happens is whenever the needle actually gets to your dermis and then it retracts and it does this like thousands of times per minute, um, every time the needle retracts, you now have like an open space where the needle was. And so you're essentially creating a vacuum that sucks the ink into the hole that was left Hmm. by the needle. That makes sense. So it's, it's a phenomenon called capillary action. Um, so this is kind of the same thing that whenever you put uh, like a straw into your drink, you'll notice that. Like some of the the liquid goes up into the bottom of the straw a little bit. Yeah. Um. So that's that's kind of the same kind of principle. Yeah. I always and try. So and, I always try and get my kids to you know when they have little up and goes and things not have the straw bent over and hanging out too far because it will leak <laughs> out. <laughs> Yes. And, and, yes. Exactly. And, and I have tried the capillary action discussion, but it hasn't. I don't think it it's settled in. Doesn't float their boats. Doesn't float their boats, Doctor Jen. No, it doesn't. Oh, you say capillary capillary action. I like that better. Yeah, it's like aluminium. It's a uh, it's an Australian thing. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I'm gonna have to try to work that into this now. Yeah. It's no more no more capillary. Um, action. Yeah. Uh, and so they're actually uh, in order to you want to increase that cap. Pillory. You want to you want to increase that action um, because otherwise, too much of the ink will still stay in the epidermis, and then will later peel off, and then your tattoo will look super faded. So it's kind of a a whole science behind what tattoo artists can do to kind of increase that capillary action to make sure that the ink actually gets into the dermis and mostly into the dermis. So they could do things like put moisturizer on your skin a little bit before. Um, They can do things like. tilt the angle of the needle so whenever they're tattooing if you imagine if you have the needle at like 90 degrees to your skin uh, there's going to be a lot of bounce in there and Mm. actually not much ink is going to go into the dermis because it leaves more of a circular hole Um, whereas if you actually go at a 45 degree angle that's actually ideal um, because it creates more of an elliptical shape rather than a circular shape um, for the ink to go into Uh, so it gets you know more surface area um so, yeah. Mm, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. We also talked a little bit about the actual ink itself. And so it has things like dispersants um, and surfactants, which basically what those are, are, they're kind of like particles that can remove trapped oxygen in the ink. Uh, and then they can also help kind of reduce surface tension. And so you can kind of help uh, kind of perform that, that uh, capillary action that way. 
Uh, and we also talked about how some people have allergic reactions to some chemicals in mm. the ink, things like metals that can also interfere with MRIs, um, MRI machines and MRI images. And some people actually could report some burning or swelling around their tattoos whenever they get an MRI, but more on that later. Uh, we have some more <laughs> recent research on that, okay. it's pretty interesting. Um, and then we also talked about briefly just how tattoos actually stay in your body. So um, it actually triggers an immune response because you're wounding your body. And so there are these cells called macrophages uh, that play a really key role in wound healing. So basically they gobble up any foreign substance in your body um, and they kind of like detect and destroy anything that's not, it doesn't consider natural. And so the macrophages actually attack the tattoo pigment, gobble it up. But the thing is, macrophages only live like months to years. And so researchers were kind of baffled on, well, how does a tattoo, you know, stay in the body for someone's whole life if the macrophages, you know, may die within a couple of years? And the answer is they basically, once the macrophages die, they excrete that pigment and then more macrophages come and gobble it up. And so we actually just learned that in 2021. And so that's where I left the episode last time. Yeah. Um, I remember oh, I'm that. I'm sorry, 2018, actually. Yeah. So 2018. So that's still not that long ago. Yeah, that's the part um, I remember most about your story was how they – because I, I could never figure out why our body just doesn't expel these things. Mm. And, you know, because even with scars, you know, our body over time kind of they, – they really lighten up. And, you know, in many cases, you can't even see where where you've got them. I mean, you know, I've got a scar from a thresher shark on my <laughs> on my belly. But of course. <laughs> I mean, around the same time as I had a hernia, actually. But and, yeah, just that's an aside. <laughs> And uh, you know you can barely see it now, and but but tattoos last for decades. Yeah, and actually, I don't know if you've heard of the company Ephemeral Tattoos. I'm getting a lot of targeted ads on my Instagram <laughs> for it right now. Um, but it's this company that figured out that if you can actually make the tattoo ink particles a lot smaller, you can get somewhat temporary tattoos that actually will look like a permanent tattoo for up to three years, oh. and then it will start to fade. Right. So they've kind of figured out this kind of optimal, I guess, tattoo ink particle. I couldn't figure out um, or I couldn't find a lot of specifics about it. I'm sure it's really proprietary. But mm. um, basically their argument is that they make the tattoo ink molecules smaller. Probably smart um, if you're so the- putting someone's name on your chest. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And so we do have a few studies uh, that have been published uh, this year and last year that I'll just run through really quickly. Um, So there was actually the first study published this year in 2023 that uh, looked at 10 participants that had adverse reactions to tattoo ink. um, And they actually looked at, you know, what pigments or what metals uh, were kind of these, um, these kind of major players in the adverse reactions. And so the majority tended to react to red pigment, followed by white pigment. Um, which was interesting. And then they actually, uh, you know, identified some of the exact chemicals, um, which were exact metals and pigment dyes. And so this was actually the first pilot study on trying to determine what might cause adverse reactions. And so we're just now getting this in 2023, which is kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah. Interesting. I think because uh, yeah, whites often have titanium mm-hmm. oxide in it or dioxide in it, don't they? So that you can imagine that not necessarily something the body would like. No, yes, so many definitely. Colors. You see, to some tat- like when I think of a tattoo, I tend to think of something fairly plain and just the kind of standard black. But some of the people you see have the most extraordinarily detailed tattoos mm. with all of these colors. You think, wow, I wonder what's the- what the body makes of this. Mm. Mm. Right. And there was actually another study um, published this year as well that actually specifically looked at cosmetic tattoos and um, burning sensation from MRI machines. 
Um, and so they actually determined um, impurities in a metal called magnetite might be kind of this leading metal cause uh, of this actual burning sensation in MRIs. And so this was also the first study that was done on specifically trying to identify, you know, what might be causing that burning sensation from mm. MRIs specifically. Yeah, I've, I've heard that, the question of, you know, do you have any metal in your body and, and sometimes questions around tattoos and so forth. So, you know, I, can, I can't imagine wanting to extract a big part of your arm if a sleeve you know if you have a whole sleeve you know your whole arm is being affected by the mri that can't be a good thing yeah i'm hoping uh, that i just never need an mri also i only have black i only have black pigment so i don't have any color so i don't know maybe that'll help and also no cosmetic tattoos right uh, so i think i think they actually put uh, some different metals and chemicals in cosmetic tattoos as well um and then the uh, the last study that I'll talk about is uh, one that was actually the first in vivo study um, looking at tattoo pigments and where they actually are stored in the body. Um, and so the knowledge basically of tattoo pigments in human skin was actually really restricted due to the limitation of any in vivo methods for actually visualizing pigments in the human body. Um, and so this was actually the first study that looked at several fresh tattoos, which I'm kind of wondering... Did they like get somebody, did they get a postdoc or, you know, a PhD student <laughs> to sign yeah. up for that ahead of time so that they could look at it fresh? I don't know. Um, but, and they also looked at old tattoos uh, during the regeneration of the epidermis and the dermis. Uh, and again, this was the first time this was done. It, it had 10 subjects. So it was a pilot study. Um, and they actually found that uh, the carbon black inks were actually found within macrophages, things like mast cells, which are other types of immune cells, and then fibroblasts in the dermis. Um, and then everything was actually stored intracellularly, um, which was really interesting. So this is, again, the first in vivo study that's been done on this. Hmm. Very cool, Gracie. Very cool. I think you and I are now agreed on the tattoo. I'm going to get Einstein. He's going to get a go-go. And we'll just stand <laughs> close to each other. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and what's the plan for you, Gracie? You go in the other sleeve, you go in the legs. Is it going to be the whole top to bottom? Yeah, I don't know. I think I always say that I'm done for a while and then I always end up getting more. So we'll see, you know, what happens. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, you know, and I know you're eager to be the first uh, human on Mars. So make sure, keep that in the thinking. You know, if there's a close-up, you want something meaningful on the other arm that just sort of says, you know, predicted this, called this early. (laughs) Yes, that'll be the exact quote. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Gracie, great having you on the line. We're going to see you a little bit later in the show for news. Uh, Hang in there, and um, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Folks, uh, we're going to have a bit of music, and then we will come back with one of our old 20 in 20, 20 PhDs in 20 minutes, one of the originals from, uh, what was that, 1965? I can't remember. <laughs> feels like a while back. I think it might have only been three years ago, but it feels like a while back because we just had Group 8. So this individual's from Group 1. Very old. Very famous, I'd yes, say. indeed. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 to Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go in the studio with us now, and I do mean in the studio, not on Zoom. She's come <laughs> back, Dr. 
doctor, Woo-hoo. Stephanie Lynch, a postdoctoral researcher from the Westmead Institute for Medical Research up in Sydney. Stephanie, welcome back to the Triple R Studio. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Shane. It is great to have you back. Now, you were part of the first ever 20 PhDs in 20 minutes. You know, that was post I had this ridiculously foolish thought on a Saturday Arvo. <laughs> Maybe we could get all these PhD students in. And you were part of the conga line back then that we had going out of Studio One. I remember Chris KP was here, you know, directing traffic. Um, and how was that? I mean, do you, was that, that must have been fun. Yeah, it was definitely the high, like one of the highlights and, yeah, my only radio experience until now again coming back. So, yeah, no, it was great. It was we'll so put much you fun. Off. <laughs> no, that's a scared away, Shane. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it was one of those things. But it was, it was a great group. It was an incredible group. We only just got back to having people in the studio again um, a couple of weeks back, which, yeah. was, which was beautiful. But So you've moved now up to Sydney. Tell us a bit about that. The, so you're at Westmead? Yeah, that's right. At the Medical Research Institute there. Tell us a bit about um, why the move. Yeah, so when I came in 2019, I was doing my PhD at La Trobe, um, more in the veterinary space actually, but on phage therapy. So for the listeners out there, phage Mm. therapy is the application of small viruses that specifically infect bacteria. Um, And so when I finished my PhD, there wasn't many opportunities to stay in the phage space. It's quite niche, um, not too well known in Australia. I mean, getting there because of the rise in antimicrobial microbial resistance but um so i moved up to sydney with a group uh the iridal lab um more so the the phage australia network uh to con- continue this research on phage uh, therapy but more so in humans now so move from the animal space to yeah. more human medicine now let, so let's just recap a bit there so phages are types of viruses but unlike other viruses that infect human cells so correct me whenever i get this wrong because i'm about yep, to no, you're nailing. <laughs> phages infect bacteria itself Yes, that's right. So they interact with um, human cells, obviously, but they specifically uh, recognise bacterial cells and they'll inject their DNA, take over the bacterial um, replication, make millions of themselves and then burst out, so killing Mm. the bacteria and continuing that cycle until all of the bacteria that it specifically recognises is gone. Yeah, it's gone, yeah. And and when when did we first sort of come across this? Because this is relatively new stuff, is my understanding. Well, yeah, um, I guess that's... The the myth, I guess, because it was actually founded a hundred oh a century ago. So um, yesterday, basically, yeah, in real terms. Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> in geological terms, just yeah. happened. Yeah. yeah, but I guess what happened is that um, we had the mass production of anti. Biotics yeah, that were a lot yep. cheaper and easier to use, yep. and so uh, in the Western medicine, um, pages were kind of put to the side until now. When we're, we have so many cases where antibiotics are no longer working, so people are like, oh, okay, what do we do? So we're going back to phage therapy yeah. and interest in phages. Yeah, interesting. And we we know that um, obviously with antibiotics there is vast usage in the production of poultry, various other things, and you know this is presumably a big part of the problem. Do we find phages everywhere in nature as well? Like, or are they just you know quite boutique like antibiotics are fairly boutique in nature they're hard to find new ones um what about phages yeah i think that's like one of the advantages of phages wherever you find the bacteria it's co-evolved yeah with the bacteria so you'll find the phages there as well so that's something that's really nice is that if you have a bacterial infection if you know where it resides you can kind of find the phages that are specific for that bacteria um in in nature as well yeah so so if i have a bacterial infection does that mean to some degree those phages will be in my body at that time yeah 
potentially. I mean, that's not usually where we find them. Like we find them in wastewater and right. soil samples and things like that. But yeah, I guess that's probably an interesting um, area of study, but not something that we focus on just yet. Yeah, just yeah. take me apart and see what's, what's yeah, left. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you said you've moved now from the mouse model or the you know the rodent model to um, actual people. So I mean, this this is not widespread. This sort of therapy we hear about the antibiotic resistance all the time. So tell us what's happening there. Is this like a you know like real last minute you know uh, where you I, I can't remember the exact terminology where you are bypassing essentially the standard safety precautions yeah. because it's um. I guess a heroic sort of scenario. Is that what's happening? Yeah, that's right. So we um phase therapy the current use is usually coined as compassionate use. Right. So that's where um in Australia for the category oh sorry, for TGA it's classed as category A. So it's uh the last line of treatment for life and limb saving right. uh treatment. So yeah, majority or all of our patients are kind of they've tried everything else and yep. this is kind of their last resort for um avoiding, you know, amputation or, unfortunately, mm. death as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So does that mean that there's often a really big time pressure in the system? Like, I'm just imagining someone who's really, really unwell. You've tried everything. They're facing amputation or, or worse, death. How, like, how hard is it to find the right phage to fight their bacteria before, you know, it's too late? Yeah, that's it. that's exactly the point, is that it is, yeah, huge time pressure. It's um, We usually have a very short window, Um and currently, I guess our team is quite small, so we, we are trying to get it down to one patient a month. So it takes four weeks from you know identifying the patient to getting the phages to the patient. Um, but sometimes that's that's too too long. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, they do wait like they do pass away on the on the waiting list. So yeah, yeah we're just trying to find ways to speed up this process. You said one patient a month. Yeah, that, that's that, that's our aim. Yeah. yeah, well, it seems like such a small number that does yeah. that when you hear it. I mean, I know I, the workload I can imagine is immense, but yeah. one a month is such a small number. At our institute yeah. specifically, yeah. 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 So you mentioned coevolution. What, what do we know about the arms race? Because I assume, you know, if these phages are killing the bacteria, then, you know, natural selection would say, of course, the you know, bacteria are replicating rapidly. Yeah. So presumably they're also occasionally changing with time as well. So there must be an arms race going on here, right? Between the phages killing bacteria, bacteria then becoming resistant, blah, 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 blah. So yep. what do we know about that and how that plays out in the medical space? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I'm sure there's heaps of research into that. Um, but I guess the way, one way that we kind of get around that when we're creating our uh, phage products is, you know, using multiple phages at the yep. same time. So if there is yep. that evolution, which we know happens, yep. is that we've kind of got to back up the, yep. um, yeah, is kind of on 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 hand to to meet that. Yep. How widespread is our knowledge of the different types of phages that you may need in a medical setting? And you know, we have this range of antibiotics that we can sort of go to, and I know the majority of those at this point aren't working. But how big is the catalogue of phages that you currently sort of have access to, or can readily? replicate really fast yeah yeah that's a really good question and i guess more is better because at the moment it's a very precision medicine when we get a patient mm. we isolate out the bacterial um, isolate that's causing the infection and then yep. match phages specifically to that bacteria so having more on hand is obviously better and we do have a network across australia of phage banks that we can kind of tap into but um locally at the westmead institute we have a collection of about 300 and that covers oh, wow. um mm. e coli pseudomonas like your normal like 
I guess, routine ones that we yep. see often, coming um, bacterial infections that we see coming through often. One, one of the things, of course, that comes up in terms of infections is when people are immune compromised, um, you know, then it's particularly problematic. So, you know, we have people who are on various cancer treatments or a range of other immunosuppressed conditions. How do the, the sort of phage responses um, feed into that? Because, you know, sometimes it's about getting our own immune systems to kick into gear and do the job. Does the, the phage treatments require that as well, or do they kind of go in and do their own thing? Yeah, I mean, when we, I mean, I'm not a clinician, so I don't mm. want to comment on that too much, but like we always say, or the clinicians always say, like, just don't stop any other treatment. Like right. the phages will come in separately, kind of thing. So, but um, obviously, having the patient's immune system on backup yeah. is obviously helpful as well. Um, cleans up all the bacterial debris that's the junk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah the dead bits. Yeah, the bits. Hopefully that you've good. destroyed with the phage treatment. Yeah. Now, just just finally, Steph, what's the success like in this? You know, as you say, as a patient of the month. I mean, how how is it going? I mean, uh, we we do at that point our patients are in a very extreme situation. So yeah. how well is it working? Yeah, I, I mean, we've had um, quite a few success stories. Um, particularly one that sparked this whole kind of movement, um, mm. or the phage Australia creation is um, a seven-year-old girl was unfortunately overseas and in a car accident mm-hmm. and she had um, metal prosthesis um, uh, in, sorry kind of put through her leg to stabilize it yep. but unfortunately she got an infection oh. and um, was facing am- amputation um, they did a call out across the world to be like does anyone have phages that can help like you know mm-hmm. target this infection um, and within six weeks they had a phage ready and uh, treated this seven-year-old girl and she avoided amputation and is fully well and healthy nowadays wow. so wow um, and we yeah. did this in australia yeah we did this in australia yeah what, at westmead I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. why we don't hear this isn't like you know you know we're hearing about idiot leaders in in the u.s all the time but we're not hearing about you know like this honestly like this is like yeah. amazing stuff i mean that's um yeah, there was no other pathway, right? Especially you know, all, so all over the world, and we were the ones up there. You guys uh, sorted that out. Yeah, I think the phage was actually from Israel, so I'll give credit to them. And it was at the Sydney Children's Hospital, I should wow. say. Yeah, yeah, but, fantastic yeah. stuff. Well, Steph, it has uh, been an absolute delight having you back in the studio with us, and uh, maybe in you know three years' time when you get your next postdoc back in Melbourne, of course, <laughs> uh, you'll be able to drop by. But it um, it is really interesting work, and I think as I was saying to you before we came on the air, I think this is about the third interview we've done now in the last three or four years on phages as a as a technology and a and a, a pathway a, a clinical pathway it sounds like an incredibly interesting area to move into and um you know these success stories uh, i guess really you know sell it so yeah thanks so much for coming in yeah thank you for having me back all right uh folks we're gonna take a break in a moment for some station announcements that was dr stephanie lynch one of our old phd 20 phds in 20 minutes uh participants back from i think we started in 2019 i've lost track (laughs) Uh, we're up to number eight that was number one uh it was good fun but it's great now to see many of them have finished their phds and uh doing other great things so uh stephanie's up at the westmead institute for medical research uh here's a few important station announcements and we will be back with some news in just a few moments triple r Uh, you are listening to triple r we've got uh, gracie back on the line from texas she's uh, fading into a saturday night i can i can always tell with texie uh, with texas gracie let's call it that uh because whatever room she's in it gets dark the sun seems to set while we're on air and you're looking very very silhouetted there gracie yes i turned on my lamp to hopefully help a little bit with that but yeah it does seem like the sun is always setting no matter like with the time change and everything yeah, every time we're yeah on, it's always sitting midway yeah. midway through the show so 
Uh, Now, we're going to jump into some news. I'm pretty perked up today because uh, our guest we just had, who's still in the studio, so we've got to be nice, but um, she bought me a (laughs) cup of coffee before the show. How many guests bring cups of coffee? A shout-out to all future guests. I think you're going to get a lot of invitations to come back based on that. (laughs) I got this text saying, I'm already here, do you want a cup of coffee? I'm like... This is this is un- uncharacteristic of all that. I never get cups of coffee. God, so. I'm feeling guilty now. I don't think I've ever offered you a cup of coffee. <laughs> Sorry, Shane. I'm no, not no. a coffee drinker, so it doesn't cross yeah, my you, mind. You also Sorry. probably know me and know that, that two cups of coffee before lunch probably not the best thing to do while I'm pushing buttons. But uh, anyway, uh, Gracie, let's start with you with some news. What's uh, What's happening? Yeah, so I'm not sure if all of you have heard. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, um, but there's been a lot of wildfire smoke from eastern Canada, Quebec specifically, um, that has created this really thick orange haze in New York City. I don't know if, if everybody's you know looked up photos. If you haven't yet, stop what you're doing right now. Look it up. It's pretty wild. Um, and there are even some videos that I've seen online where um, people have claimed, you know, it's, it's difficult in pictures to really grasp, like, how hazy it really is. And so people have walked around with, like, their – I've seen people walk around with their iPads with, like, um, a color scheme on mm, their iPad right, yep. and up against the haze so you can really see it better. Um, and it's just wild. Um, and so actually the, the fire started as a result of lightning. Um, and this is actually pretty common um, in the western side of the U.S., but not so common in the eastern side of the U.S. Um, so this is just really interesting in terms of, you know, climate change um, and just like lightning being brought on by drought. Um, so uh, hopefully we don't see more of this, but mm. I'm sure, you know, as as the climate, you know, continues to change, um, lightning is really expected to become more frequent due to changes in upper air patterns that have been related to um, you know, global warming and climate change. Yeah, so. I think we are looking at a very strong El Nino coming through yep. uh, as well, which will uh, make matters worse. And I think it's a, it's a, you know, a shocking but good example that uh, these weather patterns don't stop at the border. Yep. Uh, which unfortunately is you know affecting the US. I did see some amazing pictures though from Blade Runner. Looked exactly the same. <laughs> It's it's very post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it looked exactly yeah. the same. So, well, hopefully, um, hopefully there'll be a, you know, I don't normally ask for this, but a bit of wind um, to clear the air a bit from uh, continental right. United States and maybe a refurbishment of, uh, you know, the importance of clean air. Um, mm-hmm. we, we think about water all the time, but we don't think about air enough. So, yeah. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, Gracie. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Uh, Ewan? I'm going to talk a little bit about the anthropause. And for those who don't know what the anthropause is, is basically, of course, as a result of COVID, and COVID is still happening, just mm. an announcement there, yeah. despite what people might say. Yep. We're still very much in the middle of a pandemic. But, of course, one of the things that happened around the world uh, because of the pandemic is we had shutdowns and lockdowns of various extents and severities in different parts of the world. And that provided this wonderful opportunity to ask, really big questions about, well, how do humans affect wildlife? Mm. So we know humans affect wildlife, but it's really hard to do big experiments because you can't just tell humans to stop doing human things. But when they're forced to, you can actually measure the responses. And so this big study just came out in science led by um, assistant professor uh, Dr. Marley um, Tucker, and she's a a researcher from the Netherlands. And they looked at 2,300 individuals of about 43 species all around the world. So we're talking about giant anteaters in Brazil, Asian elephants in Myanmar, uh, 
lions in Kenya, reindeer in Norway, etc., etc. So we're talking about all sorts of animals around the world. And it was really interesting. Um, they found a couple of really important things. The first thing is that over a 10-day um, a period, so you can look at an animal's movement patterns over a short distance, sorry, a short amount of time and a long amount of time. So animals have what we call home ranges. It's mm-hmm. basically where they hang out, they do their thing, they eat, they reproduce, yep. they survive. Kind of like us, right? We have a house, we have our sort of neighbourhood, same kind of idea. What they found was over the 10-day period in the areas with the strictest lockdown, so, of course, people living in Melbourne know what a strict lockdown looks like, mm. they increased their movement by 73%. Okay, Whoa. Now, that's really important because if animals can move more, they can find other individuals, they can mate uh, and so forth, and that allows gene flow to occur. It means that populations are, you know, have more diverse populations, etc. That's really, really was important. This, was this just in regions where humans were or nearby where humans No, are. where humans are. So where so, we actually are in the environment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. because essentially the inference there is because humans were basically locked away yep. and animals didn't fear, feel f- fearful of humans, yeah, and there's right. lots of research showing that, that they could then undertake these large-distance movements. Yeah. The other, I think, really interesting thing was that uh, animals got 36%, I think it was, closer to roads. Now, roads... They're all around the world, um, and they're barriers to wildlife, again, in a range of ways. One is, of course, if an animal tries to cross the road, unfortunately, they get run over a lot of the time. Yep. But even just the noise and, you know, the, yep. the sensory overload of vehicles going past, animals will avoid roads. They moved closer to roads as, presumably, traffic volumes, again, declined. And, again, that's really, really important because it's allowing animals to move around their environment a lot mm. more. So th- this study, I think, is really interesting. And then the third kind of result is that, over the short period of time, animals actually didn't move very much and the implication there is that they didn't need to because animals in the wild are constantly being disturbed by us. So people walking their dogs, as an example, wonderful thing to do, we own dogs, that disturbs wildlife in a park yep. and so they'll avoid you. Yep. But if you can't use that area, then, of course, animals can go, okay, I can just stay put here, I can chill out. But when humans are there, they're constantly having to avoid us. So animals actually moved less over a short distance, a short period of time, but over a long distance, as I said, you know, that they move. So it's, it's a really fascinating study, I think, Shane, just the degree to which we affect wildlife and their movement patterns and all the implications mm. it has for things like population genetics, you know, and, and their survival, really. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we really, we don't think on those terms day to day, like no. just, just our sheer existence. Yeah, uh, exactly. You're just walking around, not doing, yep. you know, not, no. you're not going around shooting them yep. or, you know, doing any, anything necessarily nefarious, no. but just our sheer existence Absolutely. has such an impact. I remember years ago training a, a, a um, researcher from Zoos Victoria for one of the 3MT programs yep. to, to win that, and um, she was looking at the monkeys in the zoo and how – us looking at them yeah. meant they fought more with each other and they could measure that by the stress wow. hormones in their poo yeah. and stuff. And so as soon as they put a two-way mirror or one-way mirror, sorry, yeah. in there so that they couldn't see us, yeah. um, they stopped fighting each other. <laughs> that, I, I've never forgotten. Yeah. It was like probably 12 years ago and I thought, wow, the yeah. impact we have just by walking past. Yeah. You know, we're, not, we're not touching them, yeah. but we, yeah, we have a huge impact on the environment. We mm. do. Yeah. Dr. Jen? Well, Dr. Chan, you were talking about caffeine and having had a coffee this morning, and that kind of is a nice segue to what I want to talk about, because there was a big news story that broke this week talking about energy drinks, or more specifically, the amino acid taurine that's a 
major kind of component of energy drinks. And taurine is something that occurs naturally in our bodies. Um, we also can get it from food, from kind of meat and, and fish and eggs, but it does have a really important role to play in our body. So it supports um, immune function and nervous system function. And, you know, it's something that we all need. But it is one of the main ingredients in quite a lot of energy drinks. And it's, you know, long been sold as this magic kind of supplement that can increase exercise performance and, and strength. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I take my taurine supplements. Um, but it turns out actually there's not been that much research um, to show any clinical benefits of taking these supplements. But interestingly, we do know that as we age, our natural taurine levels in our bodies does drop. Ooh. So, you know, okay. that's interesting. So the question is, is is decreasing levels of taurine driving ageing in any way or is it just something that happens that's kind of, you know, a, a correlation that doesn't really mean very much? And so this new study came out and said, well, let's try and get some better data. And I do need to say this study wasn't funded by any energy drink companies. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> um, and it was also published in Science, a highly reputable okay. journal. Yep. So that's why I think it's worth talking about. So these researchers basically looked at taurine levels and health in mice and monkeys and in people. Um, And so what they were doing is essentially looking at blood samples and measuring taurine concentrations at different ages. Um, They did did a few different things. So the first part of the study was giving quite high doses of taurine to half of their group of middle-aged mice. So obviously half were getting the supplement, half were the controls. Um, And they tracked them for two years, so quite a decent study. Um, And the doses were the kind of equivalent of what a person might get if they drink somewhere between three and six cans of an energy drink. Oh, that bad for so you. So quite yeah. high. <laughs> yeah, don't, um, don't do that at home, folks. But but a lower level than is considered safe in okay. humans. So yep. safe but high levels. Um, about 250 mice, and um, the mice were the equivalent of 45 years in humans, so about 14 months old in mice. Um, and they found a pretty drastic effect. So the lifespan of the mice who were getting the supplements actually increased by an average of 12%. 12% in females and 10% in males. Now, that's in a mouse, that's three or four months. But if you were to extrapolate out, which, of course, a lot of the media this week did. Of course. If you were to extrapolate out. A couple of out, drinks a day and I'm going to live to a 1,000. Well, that's, no, it's, right. it's seven or eight extra years, okay. which is nothing to be sniffed at yeah, if the lot. extrapolation work. And obviously, I'm going to say a very big year for we can come back to that. But importantly, it wasn't just that the mice lived longer. They also were stronger. They were better coordinated. They had better cognitive function, better memories. They had more stable um, blood sugar levels, reduced anxiety. So all these things are saying these mice that have been given these supplements are actually doing pretty well. Um, But the researchers kind of said, well, that just seems a bit too good to be true, really. Presumably this is only something that happens in rodents. So then they did some tests in some middle-aged rhesus monkeys. um, And after six months of having the equivalent kind of dose of, of, um, of these supplements, the monkeys also showed a whole lot of the same physical physiological improvements wow. as, as the mice, including increased bone density, um, less DNA damage. Obviously, it's too early to say if it has any in, in, impact on lifespan because the monkeys mm. live much longer. We don't yeah. know that. So then finally, they said, well, let's look at the humans and they analysed the the, um, the blood level data of taurine in about 12,000 people in the UK who were part of a big study. And what they found, correlation, of course, no causation, but mm. correlation was that people with higher levels of taurine were healthier in a whole lot of respects. So lower rates of obesity, lower diabetes, mm. lower cholesterol levels. So correlation, not causation. Yeah. Could be the other way around, right? 
Well, look, yep. we just don't know. So the yep. study, I just found the study really interesting mm. that it's just this really tantalising possibility, which obviously we have to repeat over and over again. The major finding was in mice. We don't know if it means anything for humans, but this tantalising possibility that maybe there is something going on here yeah. um, that could be worth knowing about when it comes to ageing. So they're not arguing that this supplement reverses ageing. Yep. They're just saying that maybe it slows, slows down it the effect of ageing. How do we get enough taurine naturally rather than having to drink energy <clears throat> drinks, which is really not that good for Eat you? Eat a lot of yeah. fish and shellfish and yeah, eggs. Yeah, taurine and bath bombs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'll be selling uh, later today, folks. If you want to get your taurine bath bombs, I'll be selling those at the boot of my card down in uh, back street of St. Albans. All right, yeah. mate. It's where I grew up, you know, yeah. west of Melbourne. Do you, you do mates rates? Of course. Okay, excellent. Bulk orders? The... Uh, people in science who wrote up a piece about this in, did interview a neurotoxicologist who studies the safety of energy drinks. Uh, and her key advice was, even if taurine is really good exactly. for us, we don't know the effective dose, so please don't go yeah, and yeah, start yeah. sculling energy and, and drinks And there's a bit day. of sugar action happening in those <laughs> yes. drinks. I was thinking any bonus you get from the taurine probably taken away by the energy drinks, so yeah. uh, avoid those things like the plague, folks. And we all know what that's about. Indeed. So, yeah, indeed. All right. We better finish up. Uh, Gracie, thanks for being on the line all the way there from Texas. Have a great Saturday night. Thanks. Oh. <laughs> I think <laughs> she might have already uh, dozed uh, off. She dozed off. Uh, poor Gracie. I caught her off guard there. Uh, I'm going to go home and uh, get my bath bomb uh, production line going, Ewan. So I'll get your bulk order out to you of the taurine straight away. Because you and I, we need to yeah, get no, on that, get on that fast. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Big thank you to our guests for coming in today. Uh, one to the studio, one on Zoom. Thanks, Dr. Jen. Always a pleasure, Dr. Shane. Dr. Yun, great to see you as well. Thank you. Pleasure. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to hand over now to a, a Phil. Uh, Cam is still unwell, but hopefully we'll be back on Triple R soon. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.